So, Father, this morning as we come to your word, we come with expectant hearts to hear from the voice of the Spirit. This morning, Lord, we'll study words of Jesus' ministry um, as he worked towards the cross. And they're sobering words, Lord. They're words that come from a broken heart and a frustrated heart. And so we want to take them seriously. We ask that you'd give us the grace to lean in, the discipline to apply our minds. And Lord, we just thank you that you've given us the word, which is called the bread of life. It's the sustenance, the strength of our souls. So Holy Spirit, we, we bring our hearts. We say, have your way in us. Transform us. We've got open hands this morning, God. Change us shape us. Our greatest desire is that this region would see the beauty of Jesus, and we know, God, that we have a responsibility to reflect it. So this is is our time of heart surgery, Lord. Teach us to better reflect the image of Christ to this region, to our children, to our grandchildren, and we'll thank you for it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen. Well, there's no way to um, overemphasize the life and ministry of Thomas Aquinas. Um, he's one of the greatest thinkers in church history. Thomas Aquinas and St. Augustine, you'd probably call the, the two greatest. Um, but I thought about a story from his life this week that's funny. Um, Aquinas was born in the year 1225 in Italy, and he was born to a family of some nobility. Um, and so being born in a family of nobility, all of the children kind of had expected lives that they would live, roles that they would fulfill in order to um, kind of carry on the family name and legacy. And so the family of Thomas Aquinas wanted Aquinas to be an abbot, uh, which is like the head of a monastery, um, of a monastery that they had relationship with. I think his uncle had been the abbot before. And the abbot of a monastery didn't take, um, of this monastery in particular, didn't take a vow of poverty. And they were pretty influential wealthy people in the community. And so that was kind of the role that Thomas Aquinas' family set out for him to be the abbot of this monastery. But just a few years before Thomas Aquinas' birth, there was a new um, order of monks called the Dominicans that had begun to rise up. And they were led by um, St. Dominic. And these Dominicans, they called themselves the Order of Preachers. And they thought that they had a responsibility to be the intellectual leaders of their communities. And so they were, they were like rigid, disciplined thinkers. They really, really studied. And then they shared the gospel everywhere they went. And so, again, they would sign their name uh, with, with something like an OP at the end, which meant order of the preacher. They, were, uh, they did take a vow of poverty. They were, they were disciplined preachers of the gospel. And Thomas Aquinas is known as, um, in history, sometimes he's called the big dumb ox because he was a very big, heavy-set man. And they called him dumb growing up because he never spoke. But he wasn't dumb. He was incredibly brilliant. He was just quiet. And so Aquinas was really attracted to this new group of Dominicans. Um, the only problem was is that he was not following the family path that they had for him. So they did what every good family would do, and they had him kidnapped. Um, and they... They brought him home and they locked him. They kind of lived in like a castle, like you would think. They locked him in an upper room. Um, Some accounts say for up to two years. Some say for 15 months. Um, His parents lock him in an upper room and his brothers kind of slide food under his table because he is not to be a Dominican. And so um, eventually the family got to the point where they've got this teenager, he's in his late teens, locked in the upper room, and so they start sliding liquor in the room and shutting the room, trying to see if they can get him to be a drunk. And then some accounts say that they, uh, some accounts say one prostitute, some say two prostitutes, but they start putting the prostitute in the room with him and shutting the door, because they'd rather have a drunk for a son who visits prostitutes than a Dominican monk. Um, 
At one account, the church history can be a little uh, messy at times, especially um, in certain periods, the medieval period is that way. And sometimes in this time period, you could buy a position in the church. And so um, you could become the archbishop of a region, not because you knew the Bible or because you lived a holy life or you were called, but whoever had the biggest biggest amount of money to give could be the leader of the church. And so at one point, his brothers come up and say, we'll buy you the position of archbishop. Um, and they're doing everything they can to keep him out of his call, what he believes to be his call. This morning, um, we are going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus says to the Pharisees, um, you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. You neither enter yourself nor allow others to go in. Now, Aquinas' parents locked him up in a very literal way, but the locking up of the Pharisees, according to Jesus, was even more detrimental. Um, because what Jesus is saying is to the, to the scribes and Pharisees, who are the, uh, largely the religious leaders of the day, remember that in this time period there were three, essentially three Jewish sects. There were the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection. They were very wealthy and oftentimes held high political power. The Sadducees, they were the Essenes. The Essenes lived in the desert. They were kind of ascetics. They fasted. They prayed. A lot of people think that John the Baptist was raised by Essenes because his parents died at a young age. Whether or not that's true, um, we'll know in heaven. Um, and the last group would be the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most common. The Pharisees were kind of the, they were the teachers of the day. They led the synagogues. They were orthodox. And so they very much carried this posture of, we are the religious teachers of the day. We have the way to God. We have a corner market, what Jesus told us earlier in the scriptures. We have a corner market on the teaching of Moses. And you come and submit yourself to our teaching and you can come to God. But what Jesus said is that when people are hungry for God. They wake up one morning and they say, I need to get right with God. And they come to you, Pharisees. Rather than being led to the kingdom, you lock them out. And that's a great danger and a sobering thought for the church because we are dealing with eternity, right? So what we teach and the way we lead people, we are either leading them to Jesus and to salvation and to eternal life or through false, sloppy, bad doctrine, we can actually tangle people up and lock them out of the kingdom of heaven. We may look like a church, dress like a church, talk like a church, but if the gospel and the clear communication of the gospel is not at the heart of what we do, we will never lead people to the kingdom. We'll only lead people to think that they know the kingdom when in reality they're locked up in Thomas Aquinas's castle. A very sobering word and it's something we need to take seriously this morning. And so let's read from Matthew chapter 23. Our sole verse this morning is verse 13. But woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
Now, let's take a brief moment just to revisit our context for those of you who may missed last week. You might want to jump online and catch it because it'll set the pace for where we're going. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is repetitively confronted by the Pharisees. They're asking him questions, hoping to entangle him in his words so that they can bring him to the Roman government to have him uh, murdered. And so multiple occasions, the Pharisees try to entangle Jesus in his words. They're not able to stump Jesus. So at the end of the exchange, Jesus asked the Pharisees a theological question. How, whose son will the Messiah be? And they say, of course, the, the, the Messiah will be the son of David. And Jesus says, well, how then is it that Jesus says, that, that David says, the Lord says to my Lord. And Jesus says, so which is it? Is, is the Messiah to be David's son or is the Messiah to be David's Lord? The obvious question is that Messiah is uh, biologically a son of David and biologically um, the son of God. Um, But the Pharisees don't know that answer, and so they scratch their head. Immediately from that conversation, we slide into these woes, where Jesus is rebuking the men who have just persecuted him for an entire chapter. Um, And so that's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 23. A.T. Robertson calls this section, Jesus' thunderbolt of wrath. And so he's frustrated with the persecution that he's receiving, but we'll find this morning that he's also frustrated with the Pharisees because they claim to lead people to God, but rather than leading people to God, they bind them up in false religion, hypocrisy, shallow, fake spirituality. And that is caught, we're seeing in Jesus not an off-the-cuff response. This isn't from Jesus, a kind of nice pat-you-on-the-back conversation. We're finding in this conversation the frustration of God towards hypocritical religion. With that being said, let's look at this first woe, and we're going to work through it kind of slowly and try to really understand what's happening in the text. I think... The first thing we need to do is to not avoid the obvious. And the obvious is that we don't use the word woe, okay? None of us, I don't think there's a person in the room who's used the word woe in the last year, okay? It's not a word we use in modern English. And so it's easy to slide by it as if we understand the context um, and, and not stop and recognize that we, it's not a word we commonly use. The prophets use the word woe. Jesus uses the word woe. Angelic beings use the term woe. And so consider with me Revelation chapter 8, verse 13. Um, this is John, obviously. He says, Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So here we see an angelic being, the being like an eagle flying over the earth. And John hears the being say, Woe, woe, woe to you people on the earth for the third trumpet is ready to blow. Look with me at Hosea chapter 7, verse 13. The prophet Hosea says, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me, speaking on behalf of Yahweh. Destruction to them, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Woe to them, they've strayed from me, destruction to them. And so a woe, biblically speaking, is not just communicating a sense of grief or frustration concerning the acts of the, uh, the party that's being accused, but it's also a clear pronunciation of coming judgment. A woe is saying, woe to you, you're about to get what's coming to you. Woe to you, I would not want to be you when God settles this matter. 
And so that the end of our woes that we'll study, these seven woes, Jesus will say to the Pharisees, there's a day coming when your house will be left desolate. And there's a pronunciation of judgment. The temple will be destroyed. And we know that took place in the year A.D. 70. So seven times, Jesus says very soberly to the scribes and Pharisees, Woe to you. I would not want to be you when, when God's judgment comes. It's coming quickly. Seven times with sobriety and frustration in his heart, Jesus says, You are going to get what's coming your way. Woe to you, scribes. Woe to you, Pharisees. And hypocrites. Jesus is the only person in the New Testament to use the term hypocrite. And, and you remember that the term hypocrite originally was used for an actor in a Greek drama. And, and those actors would use multiple masks and play multiple parts. And so they pick up one mask to play a part, they put it down and pick up another mask to play a part. And so when Jesus calls them hypocrites, he's calling them two-faced. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're two-faced, you're actors. There's also something lying under it. Why do these actors act in Greek drama? For the crowd, right? They put on the display of their great artistry and gifting and, and talent and acting because they're looking to entertain the people and receive applause. And so Jesus is very much saying, not only are you two-faced, but all you live for is the applause of the people. You're driven by ego, all you want to hear is an attaboy. You desire to look spiritual, not because you actually want to know God, but because you crave the applause of people. D.O. Moody said this, If I take care of my character, my reputation will take care of itself. And Warren Wiersbe pointed out that the Pharisees had that little maxim flipped totally around. They were not concerned with character and personal knowledge of God. They were totally concerned with reputation. Now, let me say this to you. I know you know this, but let's just say this one more time. The day that you were put in the grave, what will matter most is not what strangers thought about you. What will matter most is not what the crowds thought about you. What will matter is what your spouse thought about you, what your children thought about you, what your closest friends thought about you. Become concerned with your personal character. I don't want, when they lay me in the grave, for crowds to say, oh, he was a great spiritual man. I want to hear my babies. I want my babies to say he was a wonderful dad who loved us well, and served his wife, loved his wife until the day that he died. That's what it means to be concerned with your character and not concerned with your reputation. And if we get that maxim wrong, our entire spirituality becomes totally perverted and disgusting in the eyes of Jesus. I want you to hear the disgust of Jesus in this moment. So he says, woe to you. You're going to get what you're, what's coming your way, scribes and Pharisees, for you are hypocrites. Now let's take the next first couple, couple moments looking at what he's really, really condemning in this particular woe. You shut up the kingdom of heaven. You shut up the kingdom of heaven. Now, you know that in the gospel narratives, there are oftentimes parallel passages. Passages where um, one gospel writer is telling a story that another gospel writer told, and the two stories are parallel. And so, for instance, in Luke chapter 11, we find a parallel scripture where Jesus says, Woe to you, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. This rebuke is very much about the doctrine of the Pharisees. 
doctrinally speaking, what they teach locks people out of the kingdom of heaven. Now, this should cause our minds to reflect upon James chapter 3, verse 1, which says this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you have taken on the role of a teacher and you have taught inappropriately with shallow and shoddy doctrine, self-serving, and now your judgment will be even more severe because you taught wrongly. You shepherded people. You brought people under your teaching and you perverted their lives rather than bringing them to the kingdom. And so we are reminded of the great sobriety of what it means to be a church who holds the clear biblical doctrine. Doctrine matters. What we teach matters. Those of us who teach in this congregation or who aspire to teach in this congregation, I want to encourage you, those who teach your children, we need to learn to think clearly and soundly and study the scriptures every day so that we can have a robust understanding of the word of God and bring ourselves to sound, mature doctrine because those who who teach will be judged more strictly. And, And Jesus says here, You've abused your position as teacher. Now, there are a couple of things that are happening in their teaching that I want to talk about for a moment um, as we begin to wind down. Clearly, the Pharisees are leading people away from Jesus totally, right? They're denying Jesus. They're doing everything they can to persecute Jesus, to have Jesus murdered, that's not totally true. It's important to remember that, that Nicodemus was a Pharisee who would be one of the ones to prepare Jesus' body. Joseph of Arimathea was a Pharisee who got a tomb for Jesus. So there, there were Pharisees who accepted and received Jesus, but the vast majority were doing everything they could to get him to sit down and shut up. They were rejecting Jesus. Now, what we say, what we would say is in our society, no one's denying Jesus. No one's telling Jesus to sit down and shut up. Everyone has a good um, respect for the person of Jesus. And what I want to say is that um, we need to be very careful that we are presenting the historical, accurate representation of who Jesus is. So, for instance, my kids watch these stinking uh, like family blogs on YouTube. You know what I'm talking about? Like a family takes a, like they go to the beach and they film themselves. And for some reason, my kids think that's entertaining. I have no idea why. Like if you would have filmed yourself opening gifts 10 years ago, you'd be a millionaire and it boggles my mind. I don't know why kids like it. And so she's watching this. My seven-year-old is watching this family. And I, I watched enough to realize that the family was Mormon. And I said to my daughter, you know, that's probably not a family we want to watch all the time because um, uh, they don't love Jesus, baby. And she says, Daddy, but they do love Jesus. They, they say Jesus. And look, there's a picture of Jesus on their wall. And I, now I'm in this theological discussion with a seven-year-old. You can imagine how that's going. Um, and I'm trying to explain to my daughter, just because you use the name Jesus or present an icon that causes people to remember him doesn't mean you're talking about Jesus. Because Jesus was a historical person with historical actions and teaching. And you can use his name and not teach who he actually was. And that's a very subtle way in our society where you would say our society loves Jesus, but they do not love the historical, biblical Jesus. They love a reshaping and a remodeling of Jesus in our image, in our likeness, as we pick and choose scriptures that best represent our values and we represent Jesus to culture. So I'm trying to say to my daughter, it's not Jesus. 
Um, so we want to be sure that what we present is the biblical Jesus, the historical Jesus. And so, for instance, there are still many universalist congregations, even in our region, who would say that Jesus loves everybody. And we agree, Jesus does love everybody. But that the way that you live or the way that you worship or um, the way that you choose to um, express your values, none of those things matter. At the end of the day, we're all going to heaven because Jesus loves us all. And so you just, you know, if you want to be a Muslim, Muslims are going to go to heaven. And if you want to be a Mormon, Mormons are going to heaven. And, and this is the presentation. And it sounds nice, except for it's the exact opposite of what Jesus said. When Jesus says, on the last day, there will be many who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out devils in your name and heal the sick in your name? We did many mighty works in the name of Jesus. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Go to your eternal judgment. And so what does a teacher do when they teach people that the way that you worship, the way that you, you can worship Allah, you can experience and worship in Hindu matter. It doesn't matter what you do. Jesus is going to love you at the end. What does that teacher do? They give people a false assurance of salvation, patting their back all the way to eternal judgment. So we've got to be very clear that when we talk about Jesus, we're actually leading people to the historical, doctrinal Jesus. Now, let me take five, ten more minutes and wrap this down. Um, when you talk about theology, and, and we're talking about theology um, in a precise matter, theology is the study of the person and the character and the nature of God. And, and when we talk about theological matters, we talk about things like God's omniscience, right? The scripture teaches that God knows and sees all things. He knows the thoughts of your head before they're ever on your lips. He's numbered the hairs of your head. He's numbered your days. He sees and knows all things. So scripturally speaking, Jesus, uh, the proper understanding of God is that God is omniscience. We also see from scripture that God is totally and perfectly holy far above us, superior, supreme to anything you could ever imagine. He is infinitely holy, infinitely good. Like his holiness never wears out. You can't drain it down. He is forever perfectly righteous. Now that creates a profound problem for you and me. Because we have a holy God, wildly holy, who knows us thoroughly. Now that theology thrusts us into a doctrine where we begin to say, we need mercy. We need grace. A proper theology of God leads us from the Old Testament to the understanding that our only hope is the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. We need mercy. Now what self-righteousness does, self-righteous teaching, pharisaical teaching does, is it teaches that God is really not that holy because if we push him down, we can live good and look him eye to eye. What Paul says is even on your best day, you don't come close to the glory and the holiness of God. In his words, your righteousness, it's filthy rags before God. A pharisaical, a religious atmosphere teaches that if you do enough, you can be like God and God will accept you. And I want to tell you flat out, ain't one of us in this room like God. We have all fallen short. We are all desperate for mercy. 
pharisaical religion teaches that you can put on an outward show and by putting on an outward show, you could fool God into thinking you're like him. And this is why Jesus says uh, in front of the religious leaders, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, you look at a woman with lust in your heart and you've already committed the act with lustful intent. What Jesus is saying is that there are pharisaical religious leaders who would never commit the act of adultery, but internally they're total pervs walking around all day imagining what it would be like to engage in adulterous intercourse. And as long as they keep it internal and in their brain, somehow they've upheld the law. And Jesus says, I know your thoughts. And if you think that just building an external form of religion somehow pleases God, you assume that God doesn't see your adulterous, perverted, perverse thinking? Jesus says, I say to you, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed the act. So Jesus is telling the the Pharisees and the religious culture that holiness is much more about the heart and you can't just build outward religion and pretend like you're holy. And pretend like you're God. Now, a proper theological understanding, again, presents that God sees me and knows me perfectly. In the words of the author of Hebrew, we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He sees me and knows me, and the standard is much higher than anything I could ever achieve. Therefore, we begin to dig into the words of David when he says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not deny. We begin to dig into theology when God reveals himself to Moses in the latter chapters of Exodus, Exodus 33, where God says, I am slow to anger, steadfast in faithfulness, and abounding in mercy. God teaches us throughout the scripture that he is a merciful God willing to offer for us atonement But pharisaical religion avoids all of that. In order to bolster up self, win the approval of the people, and pat ourselves on our spiritual backs. And Jesus says here, that disgusts me. With all of that in mind, I want to wrap up by just saying a few things here. Um... You and I need to be very, very clear concerning the life that we have in Christ. When your coworker says, man, you've got a great marriage. How, what are you guys doing different? The answer is not to slide them five ways to have a better marriage. The answer is Jesus radically transformed who we were. We too were selfish and we too were adulterous. We too had evil thoughts, but Jesus changed my life. He birthed something new in me and everything good for my life. My healthy marriage is not a product of the fact that I'm better at marriage than you. My healthy marriage is a product by God of the work of the Holy Spirit in my life because of the cross of Jesus. And if we miss that, we miss everything. So grandparents, parents, Aunts and uncles, what you don't want to do is live a moral life, a biblical life, and um, listen to Christian music and create an atmosphere in your home that's moral and biblical and, and never talk to your kids or grandkids about the fact that the blood of Jesus is what changed your life 
and that all of your good works are grace. Otherwise, your kids and grandkids will say, I can never be like them. And subtly, you've locked them out of the gospel by presenting a moral standard without talking about the actual solution. What kind of songs you sing? We need to sing about the blood of Jesus. We need to take communion seriously. Really remember what he did. I want to promote to my children. I want to remind, I I talk about my life before Jesus. I talk about my depression. I talk about the, the sin that I lived in, the great anxiety that I lived in. And I tell them that Jesus transformed me because of the cross. Because I want them to know what's available. Now, the Pharisees locked people out because they did not present the nature of God and his willingness to give mercy, and they lost the whole concept of forgiveness and atonement. Share the gospel with your family. I am begging you. Do not live with this religious ego so that when your neighbor says, man, it really feels like you guys got your finances together. How'd you do that? When you start talking about, well, all of my values I actually found in scripture because I used to be totally wrecked and my life was a mess, but I met Jesus and he, like everything's just grace and mercy and he's been so good to me. They're two totally different presentations. And if we don't present the gospel right, we're in deep, deep trouble. Deep, deep trouble. Sincere holiness can only be birthed out of a great appreciation for what Jesus did for us on Calvary. It's only by his blood. So this morning, if you stand to your feet, worship team, if you guys get ready to come out, I want to close by just saying a few more things. I want you to remember this week Thomas Aquinas' family locking him in the room and shoving prostitutes in. And as you remember that, I want you to, to realize that if we do not put the gospel on our lips, we will present religion rather than presenting the gospel, rather than presenting a pure path to God. First, this morning, altar team, if you guys want to get in place. If you would not consider yourself a Christian, if you've never known Jesus, I want to say to you this morning that your eternal salvation has nothing to do with what you did last week, has nothing to do with what you did last night. Your knowing and having rich, abundant life has absolutely nothing to do with your mistakes. It has everything to do with what you do with Jesus today. It has everything to do with what you do this morning. Will you come to him and confess him as Lord? And in that confession, you can be sure that all of your mistakes and all of your guilt and all of your your immoral living becomes totally clean and pure in the eyes of God. Not because you actually lived a pure life, but because Jesus lived a pure life for you. And scripturally speaking, every one of us deserve punishment. But the gospel says your punishment was born on the back of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. So whether or not you face your punishment, again, has nothing to do with anything at all other than what you do this morning. Will you receive him or won't you receive him? So this morning, the altars are open. I want to ask you if you need to give your life to Jesus, if you'd come down and let us pray for you, you can be sure today that salvation is yours, that heaven is your home. And so as of right now, the altars are open. Second, 
There are a couple words that came forward this morning that today was the day that the Holy Spirit was going to break off some things from some of us, that we were going to be set free from some depression and anxiety and sorrow, that the Spirit was here to break some things off of you. There was a word that some of us have been struggling with sleep, waking up in the middle of the night with spiritual warfare, demonic dreams. We want to pray today that God would set you free from that. If you have a thyroid issue, if there's an issue you're having with your toe, that was one thing. Someone might be having a toe issue. We believe God's here to heal that as well. So the altars are open. Seth, lead us in worship just for a moment. Church, let's worship. And if you need ministry, please come. If you need to give your life to Jesus, don't wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. close, if you would extend your hands as a sign of surrender. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name that you would open the eyes of our hearts to behold the goodness and beauty of God. Lord, I ask for a fresh revelation in our hearts this week concerning the goodness of Jesus. Lord, use us for the sake of the gospel, we pray. We love you. We trust you. We adore you. Bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Amen, amen. Well, the altars are going to stay open. Worship team is going to hang out, but you are officially dismissed. We want you to know how much we love you. We're so proud of uh, all the ministry that's taking place in this region. We pray you have a wonderful week.
I'm 